Welcome to Lost Link, the podcast with Muff Barber and Yogi Nickerson, where CL data is disabled and no topic is off limits about unmanned aircraft or the United States Air Force. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not represent the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or any other federal agency. This podcast contains some profane language and is not suitable for all audiences. watch both seasons of Mandalorian? Uh yeah, one one and two. Yeah. Um what'd you think? Dude, I I'll be honest. So I uh as a longtime Star Wars fan, as, yeah. as a guy who watched the first three, uh, you know, original movies, 4, 5 and 6, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll I'll say so there's no confusion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh you know, watched them in the theater okay. when they came out. Yeah. And then watched uh watched them when they were were re-released in the 90s and mm-hmm. then uh you know showed up at uh midnight for the midnight showing when phantom menace came out so i'll admit i'm a little bit That's of a star a, wars what, 99 right yeah yeah around there are you in a jedi uniform i, I was not no. No, no no um but uh so i was always a huge boba fett fan yeah. and uh fett and han solo were hands down my favorite characters yeah. and so when they were coming out with the Mandalorian. I was super hyped. Yeah. Now I uh, was, you know, maybe a little sad that it wasn't uh, about Boba Fett or whatever, yeah. but uh, I was just super excited that they were picking that up. Right. And uh, I was wondering, cause it, at first, you know, you, you don't know uh, the name of the character when it was, you know, coming out and everything. And yeah. so I was, I was wondering, I knew I had read a couple of the books while I was in college and there was supposed to be another, uh, guy who wore Mandalorian armor named Jodo Cast, and so I was wondering okay. if maybe it was going to be him. But uh, I was just super excited. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting like part of the Star Wars universe is, is not explored at all, right? In the the, the primary six six, we're going on to like nine, ten movies now. Yeah. Um, and I thought they did a very, very good job of presenting kind of the like basically stoic presence of a. Uh, of that subculture. The it's a little disappointed that they had him take his helmet off and stuff like that. Spoilers, spoiler alerts. Um, but I thought they did a pretty good job and I didn't know that actor from, from Adam when, no, I didn't (laughs) either. Yeah. So I thought that was a, a, a pretty good, uh, swing at it. Well, Hendro looks like, uh, you and I are lost link. Uh, First time uh, for the rest of uh, you out there, Yogi is not present. He is uh, tasked uh, otherwise. He has been deployed in support of uh, uh, other contingency operations, and uh, hopefully he will be back uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, but in the interim, we can't let the let this podcast uh, wait, so we're going to press ahead uh, today. Uh, I've got uh, Lieutenant Colonel retired Eric Hendro Hendrickson with me. Uh, a quick rundown on like my 
he was my first RPA flight commander. He was the flight commander uh, I had while I was at IQT here at Holloman at the 6th Reconnaissance Squadron. He's played additional roles throughout my uh, career, so he's kind of been through my entire career. And I, in September of 2021, we attended, or I attended his uh, retirement. Uh, Hendro, welcome to uh, the Lost Lane Podcast. Hey, thanks. I really appreciate being here. Um. So you, so we'll I've given you kind of the rundown uh, or talked about like my experience briefly, but I'll, we'll expand on that here. So first you flew helos, UH ones. Yeah. Right. Um, Washington was that a rescue squadron? Yeah, it stuff? was, it was a, a rescue squadron at the uh, survival school at uh, Fairchild. So when people went out in the woods, uh, part of what they would do out in the woods is they would learn how to vector in helicopters uh, yeah. to get rescued in case they were downed behind enemy lines. So I was in the helicopter actually, you know, getting vectored in to, uh, to their location. And then plus if somebody tripped and hit their head against a tree or whatever, yeah. went into shock, then we were there to, to, uh, to medevac them out. And, uh, I've heard at least one story that, uh, I think it's worth talking a bit more about. Um, you were awarded, was it a, you were some sort of award for basically throwing stuff out of the helicopter. Like, oh, right? okay. Yeah. Um, I, well, I got a uh, air crew uh, member of the year award, but we were put in for rescue of the year for the Air Force. Okay. We, we didn't win it because a little thing called OEF kicked off. And yeah. so, so, you know, some people had some pretty good rescues, yeah. I, I, I imagine, uh, in Afghanistan. But, uh, yeah, there was a high mountain rescue up in the Cascades. Uh, there was a hiker that uh, civilian hiker, civilian hiker. Yeah. He took his uh, backpack off with all of his gear in it and decided he was just going to go for, you know, a short one, two hour hike without his gear and yeah. uh, slipped, hurt himself and then lay in the elements at, I don't remember, above 10,000 feet. <laughs> Okay. Uh, you know, nice thin air, yeah. slowly, slowly freezing to death. And yeah. so, uh, a ground team found him, uh, eventually, uh, when we launched, uh, he wasn't found yet, but, uh, while we were en route, uh, he was found. And so, uh, we went up planned on, uh, going in there. It was, uh, like I said, really high elevation. There was minimum, power reserves yeah but there was enough to to come to a hover and uh hovering actually requires more energy than coming into land a lot of people don't necessarily know that but yeah, that's um, uh because the forward motion of the helicopter actually provides some lift as yeah, the blade. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely okay. um and so we we figured that we had enough uh enough power to go in there but what we didn't know is the wind coming off of the top of the ridge yeah was circling back around so we were actually going in there with a, a tailwind that, okay. we, that we didn't know about yep and uh so we came to a stop with our rotor blades about a foot and a half above the tops of the trees like a hub so yeah you yeah. say hovering a foot and a half uh, above the trees. So, so our, our skids I mean, you're below the trees. Yeah. Yeah. Our, the rotor blade is a foot and a half okay. above the trees. Yeah. So I, I, I came over, I looked at the, the power gauge 
and we were at 101.5% power. Yeah. Which we're not guaranteed to have that. That just had, we just happened to luck out that the maintainer that when he uh, rigged the engines, that everything fell within parameters and we had that extra power. Uh, So I looked over at uh, the person flying. His name was uh, Major Frag Franklin. And I said, Frag, don't, don't, uh, don't stir the, the pot. So in other words, if you think of somebody has like a big kettle, yeah. if they have a wooden spoon or whatever, and they're stirring it, well, if you do that with the cyclic, yeah. we would have lost enough lift that we would have settled into the trees. Gotcha. So I just told him not to do that. And then I turned around to our medic who was in the back. His name was Hootie. And I just yelled, Hootie, grab all your stuff and throw it out. He looked at me. He's like, what? I said, throw it out now. <laughs> I, I may have said a word or two. I don't, you know, I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't normally say, but uh, needless to say, he, he grabbed about 150, 200 pounds of gear, threw it uh, about 20 feet, you know, out, out of the air yeah. in, into a snowbank, and that that bought us an extra well, foot and a half, maybe. Yeah. And uh, then from there, that was at least enough breathing room. We were able to uh, lower him down. And I so mean, that was the, about an additional 200 uh, pounds. That the body of the aircraft is below the trees. Yes. Right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so when we when we uh, lowered him down, that's, you know, about an extra, another foot and a half. So now the the the, uh, the rotor blades are about yeah, four, four and a half feet yeah. above the tops of the trees. And we were able to kind of rotate a little bit and then we started picking up a little bit of uh of wind which pulled us up a little gotcha. bit and then we were able to get out of there yeah and then we uh while, while hootie uh put him in the stokes litter and he left some of his gear behind for the the rescue guys yeah, to yeah. pack out for us um we 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 burnt down oh probably five six hundred pounds of fuel we, we basically we planned it out where we would make it back drop him off and then probably get back to the uh, airfield where we we're going to refuel with close to min fuel yeah uh but that gave us enough of a safety margin you know better to land with min fuel than crash trying to rescue somebody right. so uh and we, we made it back in there and uh safely hoisted uh both individuals up and uh Dropped the uh, the hiker down uh, at the base of the mountain where an ambulance was waiting, nice. and then we uh, took off to to refuel. Yeah, that's a it's a really incredible story that I was not aware of until uh, your retirement. Um, you flew helicopters for what, probably three or four years uh, for for three years yeah. operationally. Uh, absolutely loved it. Yeah. Uh, one of the big reasons why I volunteered to leave and go to the RPA community though is. Uh, I was a an EP magnet, and so oh, yeah. I had a few <laughs> few pretty serious uh, EPs where you know you, you get out, you kiss the ground because you're lucky to be alive. Yeah. And uh, so, and my wife, you know, the first time that happened, you know, I, I called her, said, "Hey, how you doing?" And she's like, "Oh, I'm good." And you, and I said, "Well, almost died, but I'm I'm good." You know, <laughs> for for all the guys out there, don't don't ever call your wife and say that because yeah. uh, you know, yeah. oh, you know, say that and then say, "Oh, yeah, I gotta go." You say know? that after you, when yeah, you get yeah. home, and yeah. you're like, <laughs> absolutely. But uh, no, so I, after after three years of that, I uh, I, I loved it. But yeah, I've got 
you know, had a wife, I had two kids at yeah. that time. I was like, okay, it's, uh, I'd like to watch my children grow up. So it's, it's time to do something different. Yeah. And, uh, so, uh, for all the people, uh, in the RPA community, uh, one of the people I flew with was a individual by the name of, uh, Travis quarter Ingler. Yeah. And, uh, so <laughs> I flew with, I flew with major Ingler. Yeah. 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 I figured that. So, <laughs> so we, we flew together all the time up there. And, uh, so he left, went to RPAs first. Oh, he was a helo guy. Yeah. Yeah. Up there yeah. With you. Gotcha, so when, gotcha. when I say we flew together, I meant gotcha. in the cockpit together. Gotcha. You know, brothers in crime type, type yeah. flying. Okay. Uh, and so he uh, he volunteered for Predator, which, you know, Reaper didn't exist yet. Yeah. So when I was, like, trying to go, okay, you know, it's time to go somewhere else, uh, you know, not only had OEF, but OIF had kicked off at that point. Yeah. And I, I loved Helos, but I knew that uh, the Predator was in the fight all day, every day. So I called up uh, Travis, and it was just like, you know, hey, hey, Quarter, what's it like? And he's just like, oh, man, you're, you're going to love it. Yeah. And... Uh, so he talked me into it, and so in the middle of 2005, I uh, volunteered for, for Predator, and a week later, I had orders. That was the fastest orders yeah. I've ever gotten. Like, oh, man, we got a volunteer? <laughs> yeah. Soak that guy up. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that was 2005, you said? Yeah. All right, so definitely, like, super early days of RPAs. Like, like started flying these things like, 94, right, like, over Bosnia and, like, the early, yeah. like, like basically trial trial mode we're just now 2005 starting to professionalize uh the thing when did you commission uh i commissioned in july of 2000 oh so like your i i asked that because your your career uniquely like straddles the uh the entire conflict in the in the middle east with you know al-qaeda and the war in afghanistan essentially right because yeah so you commissioned in 2000, September 2001 happens, yeah. you know, and you're probably... I was a helicopter uh, pilot training at Fort Rucker. Yeah. I was in the air when, yeah. uh, when it happened. Okay. And then you retired in September. The last people we got out of Afghanistan was August of 2001, if I recall correctly. So yeah. you are, you're like, you, you bookend that entire conflict yeah. uh, with the majority of that being in RPAs, which is... Uh, Absolutely incredible. I don't know if there's how many other people are going to be around that have anything like that's similar. So I feel like my career is going to be in a similar boat. Like I've only got you know five ish years left, and the you can already see like the transition happening. Um, my my concerns are for the larger ATX community as a whole. Yeah. Um, that I found myself in just like this unique window of the RPA of the Air Force where RPAs were a thing and then uh, they may they won't go away but they will be their operational uh, the con op will be different yeah. um, that is that's interesting so you left Helos uh, met up with quarter you went to the 15th yeah uh, and at this time it was basically the 11th the 15th and the third is that it uh, there was also uh, the 17th Oh, okay. So the early versions of the seventeenth. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, In fact, when I showed up at the eleventh, uh, the third didn't exist yet. So okay. the, the first members of uh, the third showed up to go through training at about the same time. Yeah. I, I showed up. Interesting. And the fifteenth stood up when? Do you recall? Honestly, was, I don't know. It was stood up before. Uh, okay. Before I showed up. Okay. I thought it was like the eleventh 
And then, the, yeah, like, the, they deployed people from the 11th to go do some stuff. And then it was like, this isn't going to be sustainable. Boom, created another squadron and go. Yeah, when I, when I showed up, the 11th was just the schoolhouse. Yeah. That's okay. all it was. Okay. And then the 15th was the, uh, the major uh, conventional uh, RPA. And how many lines were we flying at the time, like, enterprise-wide? total yeah. enterprise-wide, when I, when I showed up at the 11th, there were five lines. <laughs> How how quickly did that expand? Uh, or was it kind of like slowish? Oh, no, really? it, it started expanding immediately yeah. right after. So we were never healthy. Yeah. Um, you know, I've heard a lot of people complain about uh, having to be in the seat a lot, but when, <laughs> yeah. when, when I was flying operations, yeah. I. I I, I spent a minimum of six hours in the seat every day. When yeah. I was in the third, it was eight hours every day, and you only got one day off a week. Yeah, Ooh. was and, that and a, every other week? You uh, you were on call. Was that six and ones? Like, yeah, okay, six and ones. Yeah, much uh, much worse than your <laughs> traditional five and threes that uh, <laughs> most people have these days. Yeah. Um. So, I got to the fifteenth in twenty ten. Um, cause I, well, I went to Holloman in the end of 2009, graduating the beginning of 2010. And then in 2010, I was, uh, flying the line. And in that period, the 15th was up to eight combat lines themselves, uh, and had already just split off the 18th. So like the growth was astronomical. <laughs> I don't know any other way to, way to describe it. Um, yeah, when I, when I showed up, uh, I originally showed up at the 15th, they had four lines, and I want to say the 17th had one, and sometimes we would trade lines. Gotcha. We would go down to three, they'd pick up two or something like that. Yeah. Um, I was at the 15th for a year and a half, and then I, I uh, the 15th did the patch swap where they uh, dropped down to almost nothing, and they moved from from Nellis to uh, Creech. Oh, gotcha. And uh, so I went to the third then, and... Uh, so when I went to the third, uh, they I, w- I want to say they had six or seven lines, and as soon as there were enough crews to sustain a new line, yeah. then we would pick up a new line. Gotcha. I mean, we were. It w- I think the lowest we were at was a crew ratio of a uh, four point nine to to one line. Yeah, and so yeah, we were we were pretty busy. Yeah, that's that's rough. Um, so that would have been two thousand, what six, seven? Uh, that was, ish. yeah, that was uh, June of two thousand seven is when uh, the patch swap happened, uh, and I I didn't go immediately to the third. Yeah. I, I deployed uh, from the third at the beginning of June and went to Balad. Okay, so that's so now we have some some more uh, war stories. Yeah, uh, that'll be worth capturing here. Um, there's at least one video that pretty much every single RPA guy that's ever existed has seen, and it's of that like white sedan on this crappy, grainy uh, video, right? And you yeah. see another one pass, and then you see a uh, a Hellfire blow that up. And I think on the longer versions, you see those guys actually loaded their motor tube back into that vehicle, right? Can you ex- provide us some additional detail on that? Yeah, sure. Um First, I'll start off with a little bit of background history, okay. and this will be uh, kind of a challenge to uh, to everybody in the RPA community. Okay. Um, 
when I deployed, there was a standing order by the 57th wing uh, not to shoot movers. And so the 57th wing is the wing at Nellis that uh, the 15th uh, fell under at the time. Uh, I, I guess I had uh, swapped over to the third, so I wasn't technically under the 57th wing yeah. either, but they basically were kind of acting as uh, the, the, the mothership for, right. uh, for RPA. Was the third sauce still at Nellis at this time? Yes, okay. it was. And so uh, we'd been given an order not to shoot at movers uh, simply based off of the fact with KU delay, they, they figured it was too difficult to, to, <laughs> to, to, to hit somebody. And uh, so, you know, we were ordered not to. But when I deployed, obviously I didn't fall under the 57th wing anymore. Yeah. And so uh, we would, I would practice with whatever sensor that I was flying with all the time. We'd, we, I mean, we'd look for, uh, you know, motor teams and everybody else too. But mm -hmm. if a car was driving by, we'd practice uh, just, just putting the curse hairs on it. Right. And uh, just, just, just trying to build muscle memory, trying to figure out the, uh, the TTPs to be able to do that. And uh, so one day in July... Uh, we had launched a, uh, a base defense line. It was a, a toxic, was yeah. the call sign. And uh, so I, we got up and uh, started talking to the JTAC. We had a, a direct, direct feed uh, into the tactical ops center uh, in the base. And so he confirmed that, yep, his feed was good. And he gave me coordinates. And, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time looking for, uh, for motor teams. We, when I was a blod, we got yeah. motored multiple times every day. And, uh, Jeff C Rams, uh, we, we did, but very yeah. rarely did they, uh, <laughs> did they fire. Yeah. But, uh, so we just typed in the cords, hit enter and targeting mode was, was the, the, the best, you know, it was, it was coordinates of gold Yeah. because no joke, we hit enter and we were looking at the motor team. Yeah. And uh, they were they were getting ready to fire. So I was like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> I picked, picked up. I had a, a, a direct phone to the JTAC. It just said, hey, we got a motor team. They're about ready to fire. And he's like, ah, I don't know where the ground commander is. You know, stand by. Yeah. So he he runs off to go find the ground commander. And so meanwhile, yeah, I, I spin, spin the Hellfire up. Uh, didn't have Slap and W Tarsic at the time, but yeah. I, I ran through my... The, the full checklist? Yeah, I went ran through the full <laughs> checklist, and uh, uh, basically uh, we were set up, ready, and waiting. And yeah. so we watched the the, the first uh, attack happen. They went to drop the, uh, the second motor round in. It was a dud, so yeah. there was a guy uh, sitting in front of the white sedan. He ran over, and uh, after the guy who was trying to... To drop it, he kicked the tube, and then so this guy ran over, and they they took everything apart, threw everything in the the trunk of the car, and then right as the car starts driving off is when when I uh, start receiving the nine line. Yeah, and uh, so it was a I'll say it's for anybody that hasn't seen the the full video, I'll describe it a little bit. So first, the uh, car turns away from the uh, point of origin uh, or the coordinates where where they're at because normally. Uh, you know, they dropped two quick rounds or maybe just one, and then they'd, they'd hightail it out. Yeah. But these guys hightailed it out, and then they turned around and started driving back towards it, which was kind of brilliant because nobody would ever look for for somebody coming toward a point of origin. Yeah. They would look for people fleeing from it. But uh, then they stopped and uh, interacted with another white car. And a guy got out of the second white car. It looked like it, he handed payment. 
uh, to these guys for attacking the base. And then the, uh, this other guy went to get back in his car, but then he decided to get in the back of the car that had the motor in the, the trunk. Yeah. And so they took off again. So now there were three individuals in the car. And so right about then, uh, I was cleared hot. And so, uh, I, I won't give you the name of the sensor that was flying with me. Uh, I know who it is, but uh, I didn't. I should probably should have tried yeah, to get his permission beforehand. But but I just looked over and I just kind of smiled. Sensor operator of gold. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Absolutely. <laughs> now, he he did most of the work, and I, I will absolutely admit that to anybody. But yeah. I just looked over at him and I was just like, "Dude, you ready?" And he just looked at me and smiled and said, "I got this." Yeah. I said, "All right, laser on." And so that was. You know, not exactly standard com there, right. but that that's pretty much verbatim what what happened. And uh, I rolled out, uh, rifled, and uh, and he did a rock solid job of yeah. uh, of getting the crosshairs on there. Were there so, were the tracks? Uh, he used good? the feature. Track. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. It, it worked. It worked great. Yeah. And uh, about a month after that, uh, GA took the feature track away and a software <laughs> software update. And then it took about four years for it to work right again. But at gotcha. that time, it worked great. Uh, and what variant did you shoot that with? Uh, that was with a Papa. Yeah, and that's because what, like, we have it so easy now. <laughs> the the R2s and the R9s and the R guidance on these on these weapons is incredible. It's, it's really remarkable. But in the early days... I don't remember. Like the pop was probably like plus minus forty five. I think uh, thirty at this time. Thirty, yeah. And the the kilo variants that we we're probably still flying with at this time. Yeah, we uh, actually had a whole bunch of kilos after that because we ran out of papas and they gotcha. were plus or minus four degrees. Yeah, and you had to rifle them at an exact meter range at an exact distance. And gotcha. You, and you could only be flying at three different altitudes. Oh no, uh, kidding! Above <laughs> hat, it was like ten, fifteen, and eighteen, or something like that. Oh. Uh. No, five, five, eight, and ten. That's yeah. what I think it was. But yeah, there's a we do a lot of academics on like at least we did when I was going through IQT on the kilo, the mic variants, and all these other like esoteric ones that never carried ever. Um, and I was always like dreading the plus minus four degrees and like having to stand on the rudder to bring the nose around to just get like lined up uh, to make this shot. Uh, luckily, uh, I only ever shot Papa's and then Papa 2's and then onto Papa 4's and the Romeo Guide and stuff, which was uh, made my life easy. And these days, it's it's child's play. No, <laughs> it, it, it is a lot easier to, to shoot a Hellfire now, for sure. Mm. I don't remember if you taught me how to shoot a Hellfire when I was an IQT. The only, the only guy I remember specifically uh, like in a GCS with me was Scooby, <laughs> who's still around teaching, uh, teaching students now. That's uh, that's awesome. I I think I'll actually use the screen capture of that video as the artwork for, for this episode. Oh, um, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, after Blod, did you do the was this one deployment? Yeah, I just Blod? had I just had one to Blod. Okay, and then you came back and went to how, the third. Okay, and then you know, smashing, uh, with the third for a while, and then how did you end up at, at Holloman? Okay, when uh, the third broke to uh leave nellis to to go to canon yeah they owed five crews to the 11th uh, okay. to be uh instructors and so uh i was one of the uh one of the crews chosen the, the lucky few yeah, uh, yeah didn't yeah. have to go to clovis yeah yeah <laughs> we know we yeah, yeah, everybody yeah. knows <laughs> that 
Clovis isn't great, and we can thank senators and you know guys like that for the decision to put put all this stuff there. But not quite the West Coast base that AFSOC wanted, um, but it's what they got. Yep. So uh, you went to the 11th and instructed there for a bit, and then yep. Holloman they decided to move. Uh, I guess the MCE portion of the instruction down to Holloman. Yeah. Uh, it, at first, it wasn't just the MCE. They kind of Holloman picked up. I'll say maybe three quarters of the training, and, and maybe one quarter was still being done at the eleventh. But yeah, uh, yeah I, I instructed at the eleventh for one year, and then they just were like, "Hey, you know, we're we're gonna stand up uh, a new FTU. Do we have any volunteers?" And I had been at Vegas for four years in my life at that point, yeah. and uh, you know. Both my wife and I are from a, a town about the size of Holloman. Gotcha. And uh, so, you know, I was I found out later I was the first officer to volunteer to <laughs> to, to leave and go to, to Holloman. But, uh, yeah, we uh, moved out here in uh, the middle of 09. Okay. Uh, I grew up in Las Vegas. Like my parents moved there in, uh, what year, 1990 um, when I was in third grade. And so I'm basically a... Las Vegas kid and at this point I don't know that I'd want to go back like it is there's a lot going on there yeah there is <laughs> too many people too much everything and even just like the the lifestyle I found the it wasn't until I left there that I realized that some of my perspectives on a couple of things were a little off relative to everything else because of just the lifestyle that Vegas is and portrays in the uh, the high money uh lifestyle that that place yeah. exists so um i think a lot of people like going there which is why everybody likes going to divide in ellis but uh now when, when you're stuck living there yeah it's totally different because uh it seems like uh half the people on the road are are angry because they, they've lost all their money and they're now, <laughs> now they're driving back and they're road raging and so yeah, yeah it just I don't know. They put that too many rats in a cage, and yeah. you know, they're all going to get combative, right? That's uh, right. You need a little bit of, of room to spread out, and Holland is a great place to do that. And, um, this is my second assignment here, and my wife was itching to leave my previous assignment to come back. Uh, she actually moved down here on her own while I was deployed because uh, she had a job lined up and everything was good to go, and she she really likes it here as well. So I like it, but I, wanna, I think I want to go East Coast. Uh, on a next assignment or so, buy a boat and kind of do some sailing or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I would have loved to have, uh, you know, got Whiteman or Shaw or, you know, at some yeah. point in my history just to see something different. But uh, but I've, I really enjoyed it here. The uh, So you were a uh, flight commander at the 6th, which is where I initially met you. And then from there, you went to chief of OGV in the 49th wing or 49th ops group. Yeah, right. I, yeah, I, I did. Uh, I was a flight commander for uh, one year at the sixth, yeah. and then I was a chief of Stanaval for one year. Gotcha. And then I went to become chief of OGV for for a year. Okay, it's a it's a good way to uh, line yourself up for future things, particularly uh, after you had a number of firsts, like first takeoff uh, and landing of an RPA here at Holloman, and first uh, crash. Don't yeah. don't forget that. How long yeah. how long did that take? <laughs> that didn't take long at all. No. So. Uh, <laughs> I, I showed up here in August of '09. Uh, we were declared operational in September. Okay, and uh, so I had I'd done a number of uh, 
you know, launches, did, you know, did all the taxi tests on the entire airfield, uh, yeah. did the first takeoff and land on every runway. And we, we didn't even know if the, if the uh, GDTs were properly aligned. So I, right. you know, I launched, flew out of ways, did the in-flight alignment to try to, you know, make sure that, you know, we're, we're getting ideal length before yeah. I came back to land. And uh, so, yeah, I don't remember the exact date in September, but uh, so some someday in September we, uh, you know, there's a big, a big to do, a lot of media, every, everybody present, and I, you know, I launched, flew a couple approaches for that, yeah, then taxi back the very next morning. I'm uh, rehacking uh, Bulldog alone. Uh, shout out to you, Bulldog, <laughs> and uh, so he's he's in the seat. I'm, I'm behind him on the a code. Yeah. And, uh, he launches it, climbs up to 400 feet and we have an engine failure on takeoff at 400 feet. Gotcha. And, uh, I mean, he did a great effort, did a teardrop, brought it back around, attempting to, to land it opposite direction on the runway, but yeah. we just didn't have enough energy yeah. to, to make it back. Yeah. 400 is not, not exactly high enough. Right. No, no. You might be able to do it if you had like took off on, two two or something and tried to yeah me. spin into runway seven or something like that yeah. but <laughs> but just a straight up engine failure yeah uh, unrecoverable engine failure awesome yep. uh yeah yeah they did the full uh the full investigation and we were all exonerated it was just a purely mechanical yeah issue gotcha um let's see some other notable feats so after ogv you went to uh air Command General Staff College, is that right? Is that uh, the Army equivalent? Of? Ar- Army Command General Staff, yep. Okay. Yeah, yeah it's that's the it. Army equivalent of, of air. ACSC? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, and then, did you go to SAMS right after that, or was this yeah. later? Not right after that. Okay. Okay, and so that is... So it's two, two years of school, back-to-back. Gotcha. Did you find the Army, like, school useful and applicable to like what what is the value in why does the air force try and send people to some of these other ones is it just to learn the lingo for like prepping for future potential in uh, joint positions and things like that or well that's a great question uh i would say most people get a staff job uh where they're working uh, especially with sams yeah most people get a, a staff job as a, a planner uh coming out of that but if uh, if the individual has a leadership opportunity, then uh, the Air Force prioritized uh, leadership over a staff job. So, um, what do you, what do you mean by that? Um, like coming out of Sam's, like if there was lead- yeah, if you were going to get DO or or, okay. or squadron command, yeah, 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 then uh, they would prioritize that with the. With the uh, intention that they'd probably send you afterwards. Gotcha. Because they need to, to go out. somebody to fill these yeah uh, these billets. Yeah. Uh, and and they but but they the way they look at it leadership uh, you know command positions are hard hard enough to come by so yeah. so they don't want to uh, if if you're being looked at groomed for that then they don't want to take you away from that. Yeah, and if there's an opportunity, you might as well strike while the iron's hot. Yeah. Uh, you can do the staff stuff later if you. If you have to, if that's desired, right? Yeah. Okay. So, but yeah, so basically it's just to prepare people uh, yeah. to work with, uh, 
ideally with the army or with uh, other services as, yeah. as part of a, a staff job and maybe at a, at a combatant command or, yeah. or something like that. Okay. Um, it's interesting. I've, I've always found it interesting that the air force looks at its own school is like, okay, yeah, you went, you went to ACSC, but we've got all these other guys cause it's a selective thing that like they all want to go to, uh, so, so What's the Navy one? It's uh, uh, Annapolis. I know somebody will know. It's yeah, not, it's not important. Will. But we want to go to like these these other schools in other disciplines for various reasons. And even the Air Force almost prefers those people because you go through a selective process, right? And it's just we. I think we like the 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 shortcut. <laughs> Later on, we look at, at people's records and we're like, oh, they went through some selective process that not everybody else got to go. Cool. Boom. That guy's definitely, you know, one rung up without like assessment of the individual themselves. Uh, that does happen a lot. Yeah. And what if, if you're going to command an Air Force squadron, why isn't Air Command and Staff College where you want to be to learn how to do that uh, correctly? I don't know. Um, having not been a uh, Dior commander just yet if i so, had a good answer yeah even though i had been i would give it to you but yeah I, but i don't <laughs> yeah we, we we've debated I mean, some friends have debated this over uh, uh the last couple months or so um so you graduated sam's and then came to back to holloman yeah absolutely uh, to be the 16 tris do is that right uh yeah okay that's absolutely it yeah so i was the the uh training school uh training squadron uh do um in charge of the uh of construction project the whole time too so much of the 16th was hard to live in at, at, at the time but uh oh, were they building that building no they were re uh they tore a lot of it out put a okay. bunch of briefing rooms in redid yeah. redid all the sim bays and gotcha so just complete overhaul yeah i mean it's it's been changed since i was yeah uh a student there and now that uh yeah, in about one month's time, I'll be the deal of that squadron uh, myself. So uh, I'm excited for it. I kind of wanted to go do one of the ops flying squadrons because there's a lot of goodness to be had over there as well. But that's not my destiny. And uh, I'm going to the 16th with gusto and uh, hopefully do some larger, more, a little more impactful across the whole of the group uh, over there. Um, and then, all right, so from there you went to... IG hung out there for a bit and it's always like a parking spot for uh, the next commander. That's, that's what I've always known it as. Anyway. No, that, that that's, that's what it is. And uh, I want to say that I was the first person, actually the second person, uh, Brooke Hansen was the uh, first person that was a major uh, to, to go to the IG here. Before that, it was always uh, an old crusty Lieutenant Colonel yeah. on, on his way out. <laughs> gotcha. Um, but, uh, yeah, they've, they've turned it into a, a holding pattern and I think that's a really good thing. And I, I think that almost even cuts, cuts the IG short. Cause I would say it is one of the most valuable positions I have ever had, uh, yeah. for, for my career. But, uh, yeah, I spent a, a year at the IG, um, and I'll, I'll go into a little bit more detail on why the IG is so valuable. Um, yeah, please. The, uh, we have no time limit. So. Okay, okay, yeah, good. <laughs> um, 
IG inspections used to be black hat. So everybody would, you know, hide all their stuff and try to deflect the IG from seeing what's going on in the squad. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, but uh, the Air Force uh, developed an idea where instead the uh, commander inspection program, uh, basically IG would be more of a, of a white hat. And a lot of uh, the inspection, rather than being like a two-week window, would be, you know, drug out over a two-year period where, uh, you know, MCT and all that stuff would be looked at virtually. Uh, And then when the IG comes, it would probably just be a one-week inspection. Uh, And and so I say when the IG comes, that would be, I'm talking like, you know, uh, you bring the whole wit. I'm talking everything. about you know yeah. ACC level oh, or, okay. or or you know AETC. Yeah, yeah. But prior to that, the wing IG would inspect each squadron at least once a year. Yeah. And so the reason it was really valuable for me is I had, before taking command, I got to inspect every squadron on the base in detail. Yeah. At least once. And so I got to see what they were doing well. And if I saw they were doing something well, I was at, I, you know, I, I could sit down with the commander, ask them, hey, what are you doing? You know, okay. So I can see that that's working for you. You know, yeah. tell me about it. And so I could take notes on what to do and what not to do. Right. And, and rather than being a black hat guy too, if I saw a squadron was struggling with something, I could say, well, hey, you know what? You're struggling with this. Rather than me sitting back and crushing you, how about you talk to so and so in this other squadron because they have that program licked that can yeah. help you out. And but so, it's like records management or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Esoteric and difficult like yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> everybody sucks at records management except for like one or two people on the base yeah. that have it licked. And so, so yeah, there there have been a lot of people. I, I pushed a lot of people with that, but uh, you know, but basically, I spent a year learning how to command and building bridges and getting to know everybody across the base. Yeah. And that really helps you when you're a commander, especially when something happens and you need help from somebody. And if you've already built those bridges and you reciprocate, then when you, you call and you, you ask for help, people respond. Yes. Is that a door knock? No, I thought it was. But. All right, so do I. Um, yeah, it, it sounds like it puts you in a position to build some social capital with uh, some of the people that you're going to be working with over the next uh, yeah. bit, and that's uh, uh, hugely important. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, Yogi, prior to his deployment, was the chief of CCIP, the 29th, and was struggling to understand like how a unit-level like inspection team like integrates with with the wing and he, he was still trying to figure that out when this uh, hot tasker came down that he hopped on so um we were originally going to hope to dive into this has been him hopping in to discuss like ccip stuff uh with respect to ig do you have any commentary on on that at all you can say no and we can, we uh, can cut and edit that piece out <laughs> no i I'll just say that uh, the IG office at the wing works for the wing commander. Yeah. And every squadron has a CCIP team 
that works for the squadron commander, but that doesn't mean they necessarily work for the IG. And so sometimes when you need something, when you're working at the wing IG, yeah, sometimes you, you don't get what you need. But uh, don't worry about it. It's not your job to force them. If they don't give you what you need, you just document that they were you know, not supportive and yeah. that'll be on the report that goes up to the wing commander. And then when they see that, they'll, they'll, they'll be more supportive next time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now I'd, I'd be more than happy to meet with him uh, If he's got any questions when he gets back and, yeah. and uh, you know, mentor him on, uh, on how to survive in the IG. But uh, there, there's definitely some, some ways to go about business. Uh, you know, I mentioned building bridges earlier. You know, if you have yeah. a problem, if, if you, Sometimes people want to do their best, but they don't know how. And so if you just a lot of times take the time to help somebody understand their position and help them do it better, mm-hmm. a lot of times they'll do it better. And so sometimes that's just a good approach to take. Yeah, and that's kind of like a mentorship role. Like take yeah. on, take take that mantra into these things and not the, you suck and this is these are all the ways that you suck. Fix it. No, right? exactly. That's a it's, it is a terrible way to to do things. You don't want people to uh, do things out of fear, yep. essentially, right? Or um, or if they don't want to talk to you, just put them in touch with somebody else who's doing it well. Yeah, gotcha. Um, so after IG, we talked about that that being a parking spot. You went to the 49th OSS. Yeah, and this is where. Uh, you took that in the summer of 2016. Correct. Uh, and I PCA'd uh, over to the 49th uh, OSS, probably September or sometime there to be the, the chief of so-called wing training um, OST, which I always thought was kind of like a weird bolt-on. It should, probably should have been under current ops, uh, if you want to be doctrinal about it. But, you know, we don't really follow doctrine that much. We, we set some lines and then just kind of do what we want and make it all fit. Uh as needed. And I was kind of cut loot. Like my true impression of, of that job was that I was largely free to make my own fly days, my own everything. And as long as things kind of hummed along uh, without too many uh, flare ups, like coming up to, to your level, you know, up on the second floor of the building there, um, then everybody was happy. And we just kept kind of doing our thing. So Honestly, don't know that I had that much interaction with you, except on I don't remember what time the what day the like squadron admin meetings were like Thursdays maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think it was Thursday. Yeah, yeah. Thursdays at like eight a.m. Um, and that was always fun. I thought you did a good job running those. Uh, running a running a good meeting is an art form. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is. Thanks. I, I appreciate that because. Yeah, it's it's pretty overwhelming trying to run the OSS. To to, to be honest, yeah, uh, we we had uh, seven or eight buildings. It depends on what what exact time of the year you talk about. At one point it was eight, and then it went down to seven. Okay. And it went back up to eight at one point. Uh, it's just facilities across the base that you have people assigned to. Yeah, yeah. and 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 Wismer, and uh, so I had two hundred thirty active duty, uh, median rank was uh senior airman yeah and so that, that that comes with uh with some challenges at times but it also comes with uh some youthful enthusiasm which also is uh is nice yeah sometimes and uh 
Uh, yeah, I had the uh, the largest active duty contingent on Wismer too, if you can believe that. Oh, really? So yeah, larger than any active duty uh, how many army people were, units. How many people were out there? Because I know we have people out there, but I don't know like the scale of it. Or I figured it's like six guys that sit in, uh, you know, we, a RAPCON facility out there. Or we something. actually had about uh, probably about eighty five to ninety people. Oh, incredible! At Wismer, yeah, doing. Just Rapcon. Rapcon stuff? Gotcha. Okay, because I guess Hallman doesn't have its own Rapcon deal. Like, we've got a... No, they actually were at Hallman. area surveillance point, radar, but, but... they went out. Gotcha. They moved to, uh, to Wismer to work with the Army as well to uh, hopefully improve relations. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. So supposedly <laughs> those relations are subtly improving. And I think it's less of a... Holloman and Wismer fight and more of a Air Force and Army fight uh, with regards to prioritization of that stuff. Um, bringing the F-16s here was a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> and no, more schoolhouses and need for more airspace uh, was uh, very, very difficult. Um, that happened while you were... That, did they come here while you were the commander? Or they, 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 moved here, established? they moved here uh, before okay. Before I came back, actually. So when I showed up and I was the uh, DO at the 16th, they had moved here probably the year prior to that. Okay. Interesting. The They're, they're close to pain in the butt. At least for like MQ-9s coming back and holding in the pattern while they beat up the, the thing for three hours. We had a, a crew a couple of weeks ago hold for three hours and... There's this constant fight, but I don't think it's ever going to be resolved. So you just have to. <laughs> no, I, I I understand, and I I, I was an LR here uh, with the MQ9, but I was the yeah. commander for the tower, so I have been privy to yeah to to many uh, many an upset <laughs> person on both sides. Yeah, and it, I think their problem is that they don't see they don't have any of the history like how we got here, how the F-16s got here, and some of the fights that have, or arguments and discussions that have been had about sequencing and figuring how to, how to sort all that stuff out. Um, so people get frustrated. I'll hold all day because whatever. I've, I've, I've seen it, and I, I kind of understand, like, why this is. So, all right, I got nothing to do but hang out, put altitude hold on, and talk to my sensor operator about Bitcoin and <laughs> all the other... All the other things that we could talk about. Um, uh, so, did you want to talk about your, your time as a squadron commander? Yeah. Because uh, not the easiest squadron no. command at all. No, it wasn't. Right? Uh, which is partly why I was off doing my, my own thing, because you had other higher priority taskings. So, I won't say it's higher priority, because I, I would oh, much yeah. rather have spent my time uh, with all of my people. But, yeah. Uh, one of the uh, first things I did on my first full day uh, as the as the OSS commander was uh, I sat down for a nice long uh, chat with OSI. Yeah, I uh, in, inherited uh, what was an investigation into what would become or would turn out to be the uh, the largest drug ring in the history of Holloman uh, at the time. Uh, they were saying, yeah, we're talking to uh, to one airman, and it looks like maybe eight other uh, might be involved. Uh, and 
the previous commander had struck a deal with uh, one person to uh, basically say everything that yeah get their uh, informant you know to, to be an informant and turned out he was actually the uh, the 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 ringleader of everything <laughs> it was like oh this is this is coming yeah. up do I get immunity and so yeah so he he threw everybody uh, you know this was about a month maybe two months after I took command he yeah. He threw everybody under the bus, and so I lost forty percent of the RAPCON because you, you had to maintain a secret clearance yeah. to, to enter the building. And so, since they were under investigation, uh, and basically, it all started on a Saturday when you know there was a, a recall and uh, a number of individuals that were believed to be involved were all recalled. They didn't know what the recall was for. Yeah. Is it, you know, six o'clock in the morning on a Saturday and uh it was OSI there with a bus to to meet them all. And uh they all spent an entire day at uh OSI getting questioned. You know, you you've all seen, you know, spider boards, you know, with the little webs drawn all over yeah. the place. And there was one of those about 10 yards long with uh, <laughs> just tons of people. And uh, so right off the bat, the command, I got handed probably 250 pages of testimony and, yeah. you know, charges that uh, OSI basically said that I should consider uh, charging. Uh, it ended up being... Because the commander's so, prerogative, right, to to bring charges, like almost like to a degree. Obviously, there's like I won't say undue pressure, but like there is a chain it, of command and the desire of yes them to do what. No, you're you're exactly right. It but it's the squadron commander that issues the paper. You're exactly okay. right. Um, unfortunately for me, this was such a large ring that I actually had to report to the commander of ACC on a weekly <laughs> basis uh, with giving the wing commander a courtesy copy, which means really I had to give the wing commander a a not courtesy copy the day before. And uh, so I, I just spent a lot of time trying to uncover the charges, trying yeah. to figure out really what's going on, read everything, uh, and uh, not just attempt to crush everybody, but really try to come to a good understanding of what was going on yeah. and treat everybody individually based off of what they had allegedly done and what their testimony was. And I mean, things, it, it one person, uh, allegedly had made 15,000 doses of DMT and, and <laughs> distributed it all, all the way down to somebody that, you know. DMT is a psychoactive, yeah. like ayahuasca. A, a hallucinogen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so uh, all the way down to one person who uh, they said, uh, I shouldn't say they, uh, OSI said, uh, took ecstasy at a party, but uh, turned out when I, after a while talking to him, he didn't take ecstasy. A girl gave him a mint yeah. that may have been <laughs> ecstasy, but that's not what was in what the the testimony they provided me. Gotcha. It, it, it was kind of, uh, 
I don't want to say they purposely falsified it. They may have, you know, but they were taking notes. I, I, I sure. don't know. It's a huge investigation for them too. So yeah, there's, yeah. we're all looking for shortcuts. But, uh, but yeah, I talked to the individual and he's like, no, no, I didn't, you know, and he, he, he told me what happened and, you know, he met a girl at a concert and she asked if he wanted to mint and he said, sure. And, you know, who, who can blame him for that? Yeah. And, uh, and then turned out that, yeah, he started feeling weird after that, but that, that's all there was that, that, that was it for him. So I was like, okay, uh, thanks for being honest. <laughs> yeah. You're going back to work tomorrow. Yeah, uh, there, there's no intent there. Yeah. You're, you're cleared brother. Yeah. Um, so I, I had to read through every single case and try to figure out, you know, okay, who all looks to be guilty, yeah. who all may be, you know, maybe it's smoke and mirrors, maybe they're not guilty because some people didn't say anything and or said, hey, I would never do this, you know, and so you, you just have to look through it all. But there was, yeah, it was really difficult. And so it's easy to take a other like a blanket approach to some of this stuff, right? And kind of like easy to be overwhelmed yeah. with that and find try and find easy ways to shortcut this thing. It's, it had to be a challenge to like look at each individual case and make you know make your own your own decision on the thing after talking to him instead of just like taking OSI's notes like yeah. as gospel, yeah, strictly right. But uh, on the flip side, you know, it's leaders often forget it's not just an OPR or it's not just an EPR or it's not just an investigation. This is somebody's life. Yeah. Paycheck and with. jail time and yeah. like a lot of impacts there, right? Yeah. And so uh, I wanted to take the time and just make sure that it was done right. If, you know, if it was my child, how I would want somebody yeah. to, to do it. So, so I attempted to do it that way. And so that's why, you know, you said that, uh, early on that, uh, you know, he, I, I didn't talk to you a whole lot my first <laughs> yeah. year. Uh, that, that's why, uh, we started off with roughly, f we'll say after first cuts, you know, where basically the, the, the guy that, uh, fessed up to everything. You know, mm -hmm. he said a group of people were involved, but uh, after, you know, spending a day on OSI, there was a pretty good spider web and there was about five people that were, uh, you could easily tell that, that maybe he was just mad at a supervisor or yeah. something like that. And he's just throwing, you know, you, you're looking like, you're like, Hey, you know, one of these people is not like the other, you know, you're like, why, why is this person here? And then you, you read all the evidence and like, okay, yeah, they, they didn't do anything. You're cleared. So I, after that, I had about 40 people still that uh, I had to figure out what to do with. Yeah. And it, it ran the gamut and a lot of them, so, some of them, you know, fessed up to OSI. Some of them, you know, did what I would have done, which would say, say nothing. Yeah. Uh, but if they say nothing, but there's allegations, well, now they look guilty. Potentially. Potentially. Yeah. So yeah. you need them to, you know, if they're not guilty, you need them to say something. And so I was left with 10 people that, I really had very little evidence on 
other than two people saying that they did something. Yeah. Two, two people that were probably on drugs themselves at the time. <laughs> so who knows if their testimony is worth anything. Yeah. And, but, but I had to get something. And so I decided rather than criminal, I'd take an administrative approach with them. And so I brought them all in and I gave them a letter of counseling. Okay. Uh, no, not a letter of counseling. Uh, one up from that. Uh, reprimand? Yeah, a letter of reprimand. No. Admonishment? Yeah, I'll have to edit this. I'm, I'm, an officer. <laughs> I'm, I'm an officer. I don't have all yeah, that yeah, stuff yeah, sorted yeah. out too well yet. No. <laughs> um, I haven't really been put in charge of anybody. <laughs> my, my mind just totally went blank. But anyway, um, it's above a letter of counseling. Yeah, it probably was a letter of reprimand. We'll just call it paperwork. Yeah, we give gave them paperwork. them paperwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, just basically saying on this day, you did this or somewhere, you know, between this time and this time, you did this, you know, you, you smoked marijuana, you, wh- whatever allegations there were for them. Oh, was this like all sorts of drugs? This wasn't all just like oh, DMT related? No, it, it was, was a- DMT all the way up to cocaine. <laughs> uh, one, one, one person was, was importing ecstasy from Germany. They yeah. I mean, all, everything imaginable. <laughs> So, um, which probably all started with a sweep of the dorms or something like that. But these, you these get guys like were one all note? at Wismer, actually. Okay. So, also oh, they weren't on base. They weren't even on base okay. here. They were on base at, at White oh Sand. So, um, so basically, I gave them this letter, and they had to respond to it because it's administrative. It's yeah. not criminal. And so, but, but as I read the, the allegation to them, I had my superintendent who actually, luckily enough, used to be an OSI officer nice. uh, back and he was watching their, uh, their facial expressions. And then I was watching their facial expressions as well. And then my first sergeant was in there as well, just, just watching. And about half of them, when I, when I, Freaking, you know, read the allegations that they just did the, oh, you've caught me. Yeah. And I, and I could just, you could just tell. Yeah. And then, but, you know, they didn't see anything then, but then, you know, they had, they had me a response three days later and then they came in. They're like, you know, yep, sure enough, I did it. I'm sorry. It's like, okay, you know, yep. And then the other half, you know, I, I read it to them. And, and, you know, you get the crazy deer in the headlight look like, I can't, I can't believe that, I can't believe this, you know? Yeah. And, and so, you know, when, when they walked out, you know, we all talked like, yeah, that, that person's not guilty, yeah. you know? Cause you know, like they, they didn't talk to anybody. They didn't lawyer up because they didn't do it. And since they didn't do it, they didn't feel they needed to, yeah to defend themselves. And so. When they came back and they did, you know, wrote a letter saying, "I, you know, I'm a, I'm a family man. I would never do anything to jeopardize my family." Then, to me, it was so rewarding to say, "I believe you." Yeah, I had to do something to find out, and you know, your your character has has come through. I totally believe you. Tear up the paperwork. Yeah, and go. This is done. So you you can go back to work tomorrow. Uh, the rest of so most of the rest so that pretty much figured it out i was left with about 20 people though about 20 23 maybe that i ended up 
court martialing. Uh, and <laughs> at, at one, there's there's different uh, degrees of court martial. Yeah. But uh, yeah, some of them, a, a number of them actually served prison time. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, it was a pretty rough ordeal. Yeah. And uh, it that whole thing consumed my entire first year of command. Yeah. By by which time I had PCS'd out. So I had I have no idea how that second year went. Um I've, it was better. <laughs> I hope it was better. <laughs> the uh my my general feeling uh of the Air Force is that most leaders that I have had I think struggle with mentoring people like we have the airman consolidated or a comprehensive assessment. You know, I fill out my piece and supervisor fills out his piece and we briefly chat about it and we sign the paper and it goes into a file cabinet somewhere never to be seen again. Um, In a lot of cases, it's very, it's not a personal interaction. Right. Uh, And I think most people, Genuinely, just want to know that their supervisor, at, at any level, is on their team and understands them as like a person. It can be probably difficult, <laughs> right, uh, to get there. But uh, when I got he- back here to Holloman, um, we were in some meeting in a in a mass briefing room, and you're like, at the end of it, you, like, "Hey, Moff, it's good to see you. If if you ever want to chit chat." about anything my my door is truly always open um and we can make this a you know uh you know if you need some mentorship or whatever that was great and i tried to take you up on uh on some of that where most of these skills like learned during this process of busting all these people for their drug offenses and like into that second year of your command like trying to say okay i've i've neglected maybe neglect is the wrong word but no it's fine it you can use neglected. Yeah, it, it was. It, it was not purposeful neglection. Yeah, but, but when you have eight hours a day that is dealing with that and the other four towards keeping the squadron running, yeah, you're not left with with much else. Yeah, and so your second year, you're able to like put some additional focus on that. Um, can you provide some thoughts, like like what that second year was like, and yeah, how you proceeded from there? Yeah, I would love to, and I I would say. That no, it those skills weren't learned in my first year. That was just what I had always felt. Yeah, uh, is what the Air Force should do. Uh, th- there's been a lot of times where I have sat in a meeting on leadership that has been put on somewhere, and I feel like I am the odd man out. Yeah. Because I feel like, uh, like I, there, there's been a lot of times where I felt like maybe I didn't get it because what I where I felt we should be going, nobody else, and, and that's I don't literally mean nobody else, but you know, it yeah. just seemed like that's not the trend. Yeah, and uh, so I, I've always been somebody that cares about other people, like like legitimately cares. So I mean, if if I'm at the grocery store and I can tell that the person 
in front of me in the line is having a bad day, I'll ask how they're doing. And if they start bearing their soul, yeah, I will stop what I'm doing and I will help them. I mean, that's just, that's the kind of person my, my grandparents taught me to be. Sure. And so, uh, you know, I, this was just something I wanted to do, but I just didn't have a chance to do, uh, my first year. And squadron command is really like some of the earliest, like point where you have the, you're, you're in a position to, to execute on that. Uh, without necessarily like you can prioritize that yeah. and I, prior to that you're operating under the priorities of you know the first person that has g-series orders in your chain of command right yeah yeah um, so that's the first time yeah you're in charge of your own schedule with, yeah. with the exception of a, a generally a couple of meetings on wednesday that you have to to go to right. with the group or the wing outside of that gotcha it's on you so so you had the opportunity here now at the oss and the largest squadron to try and turn that like air force culture a little bit, at least in the yeah. little micro environment of your 49 OSS. Yeah. So prior to that, I had been, uh, you know, like I said, I'd, I'd always, whenever somebody needed to talk to me, I, I was always happy to talk to them, but I had pretty limited time because, because I just had way, way, <laughs> yeah. way too much going on outside of normal ops, which was very busy. Yeah. It normally consumes all of everybody's time anyways. Um, so what I went ahead and did was uh, I scheduled three hours every other Friday in the afternoon. And so it would be like from two to five. And we would sit down in the heritage room and I would show up uh, with a, I would say I generally had a plan and by generally i mean maybe 65 percent of the time i would show up with a topic uh like one of the ones i would do was a uh, harvard business school had uh, an article that was really good on, on how to lead your boss and so i nice. would make everybody read that and then would, would discuss it um, or the who was attending these these like your uh, shop it, chiefs and Every, and every stuff, officer okay. in, in the squadron uh, was invited, you know, all the way down to, to second lieutenants. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I would hold one separately for uh, senior NCOs. Gotcha. But uh, in general, it was it was with officers. Okay. And uh, there there was a couple rules. So, one of them was this was uh, this was to develop them. And so no topic was off limits. However, for me to be able to freely and openly discuss anything, I need to know that what's said in the room stays in the room. So in other words, I could share a real struggle or a real issue leaving names out of it. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't do it, you know, so I might share one if the person had PCS'd and so they were no longer there, you know, yeah. or, or, or something like, like that. But I would talk through it with them and they could ask questions and we would go through, you know, and I would admit, you know, Hey, this, at this point, I wasn't sure what to do. And I would remind everybody, you know, I, I'd maybe, you know, like Jeff Green, Greensfelder was, was one of the guys yeah. that would attend regularly and I'd be like, okay, so remember uh, 
what year are you? And, you know, so how, how much more experience do I have? I, I have, you know, I have one PCS more, <laughs> yeah, more experience. Yeah. It's not like, it's not like commanders or some all knowing ultimate, you know, freaking small G God that, you yeah. know, can, can do no wrong. No, we just have a little bit more experience. It's really interesting. Like how a Lieutenant or even like a senior airman will see a squadron commander. Um, and you, you presume that there's all this, like, they well, they became a squadron commander. They must know, like, how the Air Force works. And everything. Everything. Yeah. Is, every, you know, and then when, finally, like, as you, at least as an officer, if you become, like, an ADO or you're working for the commander and you're having, you know, one-on-one meetings about whatever subject, you slowly realize that this person is just out there, like, figuring it out yeah. <laughs> as they go as well. Yep. You know what I mean? Um, but they have to present a different level of confidence uh to the public and to the masses right so it's it's you can see where that that mask sort of goes on but you got to balance that with yeah hey i'm still just a human being guys yeah so i i gave all of my officers a free bi-weekly peek behind the curtain yeah and i would openly admit when i struggled or i didn't know the right answer but how I got to what I thought was the right answer. Yeah. And uh, so that, that highlights what I, what I think is a really important concept that sometimes we, I don't, I don't want to say air force, just we as people sometimes struggle with. And that is, we often want to look right. And by wanting to look right, we'll defend our positions, Mm -hmm. we'll we'll defend our decision, defend what we said, when really we should be concerned about getting to right. And we do a really good job about that when we're briefing before a flight or debriefing after a flight. But as soon as you step out of that debrief room, people change and they care about looking right again. Yeah. And really, especially when you're in a position like, you know, as a squadron commander, you should not be that way. You, you need to be concerned. You need to be humble. You need to, to want to get to the right answer. And that means if you don't know what it is, you should freely admit that and, and work, move, move forward so that you can get there. Yeah. And, and by admitting that, yeah, at times I don't know but I will do everything I can to get there. I, I think you actually build more credibility than you lose. Yeah. I think there's, there's an authenticity there because it, most people, I think second guess themselves all day, every day. Right. And in particularly in an organization like the military where people are putting on a bit of this mask of, no, I know what's going on. This is what we're going to do. You know, present a very military image. Behind that is the guy that's like, I don't know. I looked at like five different options and I, I think this is the right one. I'm not 100% sure. And just knowing that that's happening at the next level and your, your, your boss is thinking that and like conveying to you that that is okay to be that way yourself is very freeing. Yeah. Because we, we live in this. And as you continue, the Air Force is something of a zero sum game. Only some percentage of people are going to make the next rank and continue like uh, on this progression. Uh, and so we're very concerned about 
looking as good as we can on paper or yeah. anywhere else instead of just doing our best in the moment, you know, which is, which, which can be difficult to do, but internal, they're all just, everybody's like a nervous bundle of yeah, energy and uncertainty. Yeah. Uh, no, no, they, they do. And it shouldn't be that way. And yeah. I don't, I don't know if you remember the uh, initial feedback I gave you when you first uh, started working for me while you were the, Oh, at the, at the OSS. No, I do not. Okay, so I, I actually sat down with every officer for, it probably averaged an hour. And uh, I gave a pretty decent sheet of my expectations. And one of the things that I told everybody is, if you need to talk to me, awesome, talk to me. But if you need to make a decision and you can't get a hold of me, make the best decision you can. I do remember that. If it turns out you made the wrong decision, you will never get in trouble from me yeah. for making the wrong decision. Instead, we will sit down, we will look at it, we'll learn from it, and we'll move on forward together. And, you know, I, I, I told every officer that worked for me that, and I fully expected that nobody would believe me <laughs> until there was one breakthrough case. Yeah. And as soon as there was, I figured it would spread like wildfire that, holy heck, Hendro actually meant what he said. Yeah, this is real. And by the time, by the time I left, everybody believed it. Yeah. And, and that was, that was awesome. But yeah, you have to, you have to, I, I, I think to be a good leader, you have to quit putting the mask on. I think you have to be real. Mm-hmm. And let people know what what real actually is. And I, uh, the average leader doesn't do that in the Air Force. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to say I was the best leader, but I will say that I think I, I set my people up to take my place better than I was ever set up by anybody yeah. uh, that, that led me. Well, to, to create a culture of that takes like an entire chain of command right it's like most the the hierarchy of a, a military organization has its benefits uh but there are some downsides right if you're trying to do a thing and your boss doesn't get that necessarily then that can look different to him than it does to you right and there's so there's a communication piece that has to happen there but as you go further and further along you know wing commanders are busy guys Numbered Air Force commanders are busy guys. Like they don't have the time to get to that level of the depth of understanding uh, that happens there. And it's so it's for that reason I've I've heard that squadron command is kind of like the peak, like the pinnacle of a like the emotional pinnacle of your Air Force career for or the military career for that matter, because it's you're empowered, at least with, you know, your your piece, right? Um and you are close enough to the action of you know the the largest number of people uh, that you can have a, a close interaction with, and I think like an op squadron here has like 150 people or so, which is close to Dunbar's number of the, yeah, the number yeah. of people that you can actually have a meaningful relationship with. Uh, is there something to that? And once you're above that, it starts to get weird because <laughs> now you're more on the bureau bureaucratic side of running the organization 
right? Yeah. I'm never going to feel a like an emotional connection to say the the ops group or the wing, but I can have that feeling about a squadron because this is my team. You know what I mean? And these are the patches I'm wearing and I will go to I will go to bat for against any other squadron that my squadron is the best. You know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. But it's hard to do the same thing on like a group level and higher. So um would you agree the squadron command is is awesome? I would. I would absolutely agree it's awesome. Uh for a few reasons. Uh, one of them, and we already kind of mentioned it, it's the first time that you are in control of your own schedule. Yeah. And so you are free to prioritize, at least at least I was in my second year, you know, a lot of the things that you, you, you think are, are most important. And so you can, uh, it, and some of this stuff I was still able to do in the first year just because I, I communicated to my entire leadership team what I expected. Yeah. And so I was at least even if I myself was super busy and couldn't uh, mentor as much as I wanted to, I could still set the culture up. Um, but so, yeah, you, you have the time to do that. Um, I would say it's also the most rewarding uh, position simply because you are in more of a position to actually help somebody than probably at any other time. Um, Definitely, like, like simple example. Okay, uh, I can give you a few different examples. Okay. So, uh, I had one person whose child uh, developed a rare. Uh, disorder and i'm i'm not going to say anything yeah. well, i don't want to give any they had a medical name, issue names away family medical issue that was it, difficult very very severe yeah and so within uh a very short order we not only found them a place that they could move to get their child taken care of but also worked to find them what should be a good job while they're there so it's so, like, so uh, it's efmp not, yeah, type of thing. yeah, yeah, but but it was an EFMP where there's like maybe two places yeah, in the yeah. nation they could go, <laughs> and so trying to work so you can not only take care of the family, but you can also try to take care of the person's career so that they don't have to sacrifice yeah. that, but but they'll still be in a position where they will have time and and what they need to take care of their family. You know, being being able to set something like that up, yeah, or um, you know, having the time to mentor, having the time to uh, okay, I, I had one person uh, in my squadron who developed a very rare blood disorder, and uh, this person actually was uh, on on the ground at Ground Zero and on nine eleven, oh. and so that's quite likely why uh, she developed uh, a weird blood disorder. A yeah. lot of people that were, you know, developed a lot of... Uh, Ingested a bunch uh, of 1970s unusual, asbestos yeah. and who knows yeah. what else, right? Yeah. And so uh, th- this person was no longer able to continue serving, but I was able to take care of her and uh, help her through the med board process and have a military or a, a medical retirement 
with dignity so that she would be able to continue to provide for her family would be able to have insurance so that, you know, so that she can continue to live because yeah, yeah. her, her treatments were expensive. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's through no, <laughs> no fault of her own. So, uh, you know, uh, another example, I had one person who, uh, I was told was, uh, lazy. They, uh, you know, didn't work out. They, uh, you know, were not doing well in their PT tests. And, um, so I pulled them in and, uh, said, Hey, you know, what, what's going on? Well, sir, every time I run, I get a migraine. Okay. Uh, this happened before. No. So it's, it's unique only to Holloman. Yeah. In fact, I went to, you know, NCO Academy not that long ago and it wasn't an issue. Okay. <laughs> let, let's go to the med group and, and let's, let's do some allergy testing or something. Turns out, yeah, they're freaking allergic to something here at Holloman. So we, we get them, you know, PCS on so they're not miserable all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I easily could have kicked that person out. I'm, I'm sure a lot of other commanders might have because yeah. it was easy and it wouldn't take time. However, sometimes just taking that extra bit of time to ask a few questions, to investigate, and find out what's really going yeah. on allows you to take care of an airman. And, and really set them up in a way that helps them and helps the Air Force because now there's a, a well-trained person who's had 12 years in, in the Air Force yeah. that doesn't have to be replaced. Right. And the PT test always seems like the easy kill yeah. for pretty much anybody. It's like, well, it says here in black and white that uh, you failed the PT test one too many times. Sorry, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing I can do. You know, and that's not strictly true. No, it's not. <laughs> right. That's uh that's curious. Yeah. So uh, so yeah, so you, you, you just as a squadron commander, you get to help people. I, I also had uh one person who uh who developed cancer. And uh so they said, Hey, you know, let me know when you get your, your uh referral. So you can go start getting treatment. So a, a few days go by and he shows up at that meeting that you were talking about that was, was well run, you know, mm -hmm. our, our, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, he shows up and afterwards when everybody else leaves, I'm like, did you get a referral yet? And he's like, no, they haven't given it to me yet. I'm like, okay, grab your stuff. He's like, why? What's going on? I said, you're, you're going with me to the med group. He's like, no, 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 sir. You, you don't have to go. I said, I, I didn't ask you if you wanted me to go. I told you to get your stuff. I, yeah. I am going. I said, I'm, this I'm going. This is happening. Yeah, I'm going with you, <laughs> and we're going to do it. And so I just walked up to uh, referral management, and I said, my airman here has cancer. They've been waiting for the referral. They haven't gotten it yet. It's been a week. I am not moving here until it, until this person has the referral in hand. Yeah. Needless to say, 15 minutes later, they had the referral in <laughs> no, hand. They, they just needed to have figure out some priority here. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so and the person's doing well now. Uh, you know, they're cancer-free. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that, that's a difficult time in life. And I, I'm... 
when you when you take time like that to to show your airmen that they are the priority. Yeah. That you're willing to drop whatever else it is and go take care of them. It it feels really good. Yeah, I mean, that, it, it that, is hugely rewarding. And they will go to war for you. Oh, they like, will. Like, like, if they know that you are sacrificing some of your time and your uh, your faculties to help them with a very difficult problem, they will be indebted to you, and they will they will sing your praises to everybody. You know, particularly like in the unit, and you, you develop a or you can develop a a strong unit culture and a kind of a cohesion yeah. uh, behind. Uh, those things. It's like servant leadership, uh, at least in that model, right? Yeah, There's, no, a- a- absolutely. Let's see. Um, to that end, so it sounds like a squadron I would have I would have enjoyed being a part of. Um, yeah, I'm sorry you you left before my, all the... I had been here for almost five years. Before all the good part. So, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a time to move on. It's a, it's a common phrase in the Air Force. It's, it's all about timing. Um and I've got some, apparently a lot of bad timing in, in some areas that, uh, so be it. Um, so we just talked about a bunch of the, uh, the high points. Um, the, it's my understanding that the kind of fallout from that drug ring, like there, there's some other politics going on, right? You're not going to be, you know, some other squadron commander or somebody around the place that sees that happening. We're human beings. We can't help but, you know, talk about these things and kind of develop our own opinions. Uh, politics, at least from my perspective, plays a an increasingly important role uh, in the in the long game of a, a an Air Force career. And if you want to be want to be in for become a colonel, become a you know a brigadier general, like you're starting to play a lot more political games. Um, can you speak to the reality of that? Maybe not like I, I don't need any of the specifics, but like why? Why are human beings maybe like that, and why is that like the Air Force is probably never really going to escape it? Um, I will try. Okay, I I will say that yes, there politics definitely happens. I will say I don't personally know why simply because i am not i'll just say i'm not a real political person yeah me neither (laughs) i've got i've got people of every walk in of life that have worked for me uh and regardless i have always tried to give them my best and uh but i i will say that the Air Force, I will say a lot of leaders like to promote many versions of themselves. Sure. Uh, so they they look for what they're comfortable with. They're, they're looking for people that maybe approach things like they do. Um, and, and they tend to... Uh, when you find somebody like that, you tend to be a little bit more comfortable sure, with that person. So you might spend more time with them. And as you spend more time with them, they become 
you know, your, so let's say this person might be the wing commander. So you, you might, this person might become your favorite squadron commander. Yeah. And so now, uh, you know, you might, uh, start stratting them higher, figuring that they do a better job. And, uh, one of the things that can often be troublesome is we, uh, as individuals, we, we don't know, we, we, we can't see our own flaws. Yeah. And so we often don't know if what we're perceiving is real or, or maybe a mirage. And, uh, so. Well, we definitely like the people that reinforce like what, what, what we, we think we're awesome for. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's it. We're not looking for people that like might remind us of the, maybe some of the darker uh, negative aspects of our own personalities. Right. right? And so for that reason, for, for years, I have actually thought that uh, when, you know, for, for any officers OPR, it shouldn't just be from the people above that Mm -hmm. officer. It should include the people who are working for that officer and the peers of that officer. So if it, you know, maybe if that officer often takes credit for something that, you know, one of his peers mostly did. Yeah. Then if there's a 360 evaluation done, then that might pop up on there. And if that, you know, sure there's, you know, there's always, you know, uh, a margin of error on, on, on top of and below, and you should tend to believe the yeah. meat. But if there tends to be more than that margin of error, then you're like, okay, well there might be something to this. Yeah. And so I think it's a mistake to simply look at, you know, ha- have our boss be the only one who decides if we've done a good job because we may have done that good job at the expense of our people Yeah. instead of focusing our efforts on developing them, uh, moving obstacles out of the way for them so that they can do a good job uh, as opposed to just crushing them. Yeah, and I mean, now I'm like... But- I don't care that much about my OPRs because I care about two lines on it, <laughs> the last two lines. And it's how small is the first number and how big is the second number uh, on that line. The rest of it is, it's frankly garbage. Um, <laughs> and largely unimportant. It's, it's interesting. The power that, that the strat has, uh, has developed uh, over the years. Cause I, the beginning of my air force career, I don't remember much about like, yeah, whatever the strat was interesting, but it didn't seem to have the impact and the power that it has now. Um, to the point where we're going to static closeout dates uh, for officers, which is going to line up all the strat sessions for for the whole thing. We're getting we're building this little bureaucracy around a very human centered uh, thing that, that you know evaluation is. And is this person good for the Air Force and like one of our future uh, leaders? Three sixty feedback. I think a lot of people are scared because it can lead to like. I don't want to say like not necessarily backstabbing, but a bit of backbiting, you know, like you are say a flight commander, you know, and you're, you're providing some commentary on another flight commander. And you're like, well, if I say he sucks and enough of these other people say he sucks, then that bumps my thing. So there are some like gamesmanship things that you can run into there, which I think is what scares the military off of it. Yeah, uh, there's a Rand study about 360 feedback that they basically said use maybe a useful tool 
don't recommend for evaluations. Yeah, uh, and I, I, I'm aware of uh, some of that, but you can also look at it and figure out what the median average of that is yeah. so that you, you can still learn from it and, and make it a, a part of it. it. It just may take some a couple years of effort to figure out right. What, what right looks like before you go, okay, yes, this will be a part of it going forward. Yeah. And if... And if an officer does that to other officers, then the the next year every officer will know that, yeah, and will rat that person out for for doing that. Yeah, there's so so it might get you ahead one year, but that'll be the end of it. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm interested in the dynamic. Um, perhaps you're aware that I wrote some software that implements that and like makes it as easy as possible for any organization to to run that. It takes some some admin. Uh, work on the back end that there's undoubtedly better ways to implement it, but it's a hard, it's a hard system to maintain. Um, yeah. But all the feedback in that system goes to that person's supervisor. You can't see it directly and it's for the supervisor to see it, read it. And then if they decide that it's worthwhile to have a conversation about, then they can go ahead and do that. Yeah. Right. Um, but it's a it's a it's a significant departure, uh, and providing a lot more agency to a bunch of people that you don't know if you can trust yet. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean. So uh, I I can understand why an organization as large as the Air Force or the DoD is is hesitant to. We actually already do it though. Uh, how's that? We have we have for climate assessments. Oh yeah, the the DOCs. Yeah, yeah, and, that's, and that is huge. Scottish commanders live and die by yeah. <laughs> by their DOC surveys. Um, AFSOC recently sent me an email. Uh, I don't remember what the name of their this project was, but they have some guy that they're considering for a DO that I was briefly assigned to the same squadron with. And it was like, they were asking me about this guy. The first question was, do you feel like you have, you know, have spent enough time to be able to provide reasonable feedback? And I was like, nope. <laughs> and moved on. So I didn't get to see the rest of that process, but it's interesting to see that there's, there, there are these efforts out there to try and uh, suss out the quality of the people that they're they're hiring into positions to get past some of this, maybe not favoritism, but bias yeah. uh, that is inherent in the system. Right. That's uh. That's interesting. Did you? So after after your time at the OSS, did you PCS somewhere? No, oh, okay. No, that I was didn't. that was your second. That's right. That was your second assignment because you did uh, school the the two years of school. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this was my second assignment. Gotcha. So no, after uh, after the USS, I went to the wing to be the uh, director of staff. Yep, it's an interesting position. Like in, like it's <laughs> the wing business is harried and they're all over the place and it seems can seem chaotic trying to wrangle uh, all of these things. Um, I'm watching the current DS, and I think she's doing a great job with it. Uh, but just to see, like, it is hair on fire because there's 4,000 sources of fire across the base, <laughs> you know what I mean, yep. that you're, uh, you're paying attention to. Um, did you enjoy it? Is, is there anything you want to say about, like, working at wing level stuff? I mean, it's 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 bureaucratic work that has to be done i'll say i enjoyed it in some aspects um so as a director of staff uh 
you know, obviously there's a large staff at the wing mm-hmm. and uh, most of the time they're doing their, their own thing with a very limited amount of, uh, of input uh, from anybody above their immediate shop supervisor. And so uh, one of the things I enjoyed doing was every week I visited every shop. So every single staff. So I would just, just, I mean, you'd think that that should be normal, yeah, but it's not, yeah. you know, like, like when I was the IG, for instance, my previous time in the wing, I want to say the uh, director of staff probably stopped in twice over that year to, to say hi. Yeah. So, you know, I upped it from twice to 52 times, yeah. you know, so, <laughs> you know, so I just basically walked, walked along and just, just found out, Hey, what, what are you guys dealing with? Where do you need help? Where are you yeah. having issues? Where can I help? And, um, that's really rewarding. It, it's freaking, you know, the first time it happens, you, you can tell they're like, what is this guy doing for here? real? Yeah. Or is he going <laughs> to rat me out? You yeah. know, but after, you know, uh, again, after three or four, you know, times sticking my head in and then finally the first person in the staff saying something and me helping them and not ratting them out, not, yeah. not, you know, tattletale on or anything, but just helping them and leaving it that. Yeah. Then, you know, it started to, you know, word spread that, yeah, no, Andrew's just here to help that that's it. And so all of a sudden, you know, people started being really honest with, right. Hey, this is, this is where we're struggling. Uh, could you help with this? And a lot of times, and this is a really solid word of advice for people who want to be in leadership. Lots of times there are problems that you can solve in 10 minutes when you're a major or a lieutenant colonel that the airman or the civilian working in the staff agency or whatever, they might spend a week going back and forth on emails trying to solve that problem. Yeah, even sometimes just trying to find the right person to find the belly button that can give them the answer they need. Yeah. Yeah. And so just taking your 10 minutes, because that's usually all it took. Occasionally there would be one that would take longer. But uh, taking your 10 minutes to actually help and get them you know, moving again, moving forward in the right direction was hugely rewarding. And and you could see the staff starting to to chug along and become more and more efficient, not because I'm doing their work for them, but because I'm just removing minor obstacles because yeah. I can do that easily and it just frees them up to do the work. And this is uh start my transition to the sixteenth uh in the DO job and the guys in there now basically like your job, like remember, man, your job's not to be the expert. And pretty much anything that these guys are doing, that's why they're the the chief of training and the the chief of you know syllabus development or whatever it is that they're doing. That's their that's their baby. Yep. Your job is to you know basically provide some force, some forethought or like foresight into. All right, these are some of the roadblocks that I think this guy might run into, and then you try and be out in front. <laughs> you know, run a defense and, you know, knocking some of those things out of the way as early as you can to, to allow the rest of the team to follow through, follow through and make the, 
you know, bring the bring the ball across the goal line if we want to use a nope. sports ball reference. Nope, that is uh, that is exactly right. And uh, I've I've sat down with him and had had some chats in the, yeah. in the past as well. So I've spent some time mentoring him. So yeah, but no, that's that's exactly correct. And that that is great advice, not just for DOs but for commanders as well. Right, and probably just leadership. <laughs> yeah, in general. And in that case, I mean, that's I mean, you could call it servant leadership. But that could also be like just serving from the front i guess like because you are the little guy in the front trying to yep. to sort all this stuff out for him before it gets to before it gets to them um so you retired in september uh, it, it was actually in august but uh that wasn't my, when my ceremony was oh, but okay. uh but i didn't actually retire until uh october i had a whole bunch of gotcha. leave saved up okay sorry i got that wrong nah, it's, fine. <laughs> it's all good should have had that uh listed um do you feel like a, the Air Force can be a stressful place? Yeah, it can. <laughs> to live and work. Um, have you felt like a, a general reduction in stress after the fact? And like, because so many people are just constantly grinding like uh, hamsters on the wheel trying to get to, you know, the next, the next promotion and stuff. And then like when you get out of the military, you can look back at it and be like, huh. Why was I doing all that? Like, have, you, have you had uh, any insight to any, anything like that? Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's funny because I am the type of individual that uh, I tend not to let things bother me as much as some other people tend yeah. to. So I, I tend to, you know, water off the back kind of kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but my wife could tell a difference very shortly Yeah. <laughs> afterwards, you know, I'm like, really? You know, she's like, oh yeah. And then she started lift, listing off, you know, you know, factors and they're like, oh heck yeah. I, I guess you're right. Yeah. So, um, I can definitely say as more time, you know, at first when you retire, it's really weird. You don't know what to do. Yeah. It, I mean, it's just, your entire world is like flipped upside down, you know, yeah. like, like you're just walking and then no joke, somebody pulls the, the, the freaking tablecloth out from underneath you and, you know, and then you, you get back up and everything looks different. And I mean, you're, you're just trying to figure out what in the world's happening. A week before your ceremony, I mean, you're, you know, you're putting plans together for, you know, the next exercise that this group is going out to do or whatever. And then yeah. a week later, it's like, well, that's all gone. Yeah. yeah. It's, <laughs> you like, it's like, you yeah, it's like I don't even have to wake up at any specific time, you know, yeah. or, you know, it's, yeah, it's just, it's weird. But, uh, no, I, there is definitely less stress in my life. I definitely sleep better now. Yeah, uh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, I miss the Air Force. I, uh, I miss the camaraderie. I miss... I miss our mission. I miss having the chance to mentor people. I miss meeting so many different people because yeah. I, I really, really do love people. Um, but I can say now that I wouldn't go back. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my I think my life got turned upside down a little bit more than the average person's. Uh, when when they're retiring, simply because I I got med boarded and yeah. forced to retire because I got paralyzed. 
yeah uh by somebody but uh um i am really enjoying life right now i uh was lucky enough to land on my feet as a contract instructor for a while yeah. and then that got jerked out from underneath my feet as well as the contract got cut back and since I was a recent hire, uh, yeah. you know, last in, first out. It is, it's unfortunate how unions unions can yeah, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I get it. You know, that yeah. was that was the rules when I signed up, and I, I signed up, so that that's fine. So, yeah, I, I, I had a five- to ten-year plan to start my own business, and that became the, the one-month plan, which yeah. is kind of overwhelming, but... Uh, trying to start my own business. Well, it's actually started, but just don't have income yet. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a but, business uh, like that. <laughs> it'll, it, it'll come. Uh, but no, I, uh, I, I wrote a book. Uh, yeah. It's not quite published yet, but it should be out hopefully within a month or so. Oh, no kidding. That soon. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just sent it back. Uh, I got it back from an editor, made all the uh, – Recommended changes or some areas that, you know, maybe weren't clear. You know, obviously it was clear to me, but what if it's not clear to the editor, then it won't be clear yeah. to, to, to the reader. To the reader. Yeah. So, you know, so I, I made those changes and uh, sent that back, uh, I want to say, on Tuesday. Okay. And so hopefully I'll get it back here sometime soon. And uh, Is that what you're spending most of your time with right now? Like uh, trying to get this business going and finalizing yeah. this book? Y- yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, I, yeah, absolutely. And which, you know, when it was a five-year plan, but turned into a one-month plan, you, you don't have everything lined up, yeah. you know, so, <laughs> so there's a bit of flail involved as well. Although the, the book part, it's not really flailing right now. Cause I actually wrote it over the last uh, two and a half years. Yeah. And uh, so I just, uh, just working on trying to, Get the edits done quicker now. Do you intend to uh, do like a, an audio book? I, I hope to you, at some point because... I mean, heck, you could just do it yourself, right? Just <laughs> No, no, I, I, I probably could. Uh, no, I, I, I hope to do an audio book just because, uh, you know, I, I still read, but uh, but I also love audio books. So when I'm driving, I yeah. can just, just listen to something. And there's a lot of people that, uh, that don't read that might listen to an audio book and i i think i have an important message yeah and so so i want to get it out uh via whatever whatever ways i can yeah there's a there's a lot of people that say that they read books and say oh i read that book i'm like well did did you read read it it? yeah Yeah. or did you listen to it because there's there's potentially like a different level of comprehension you're going to gain out of that because of the time you can spend like ingesting the individual words and stuff. But uh, but if you don't have time for that, definitely at least listen to the audio book. Yeah. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts on tons of subjects and primarily while I'm driving and stuff, and I gain a lot of, out of it. I may not get the whole the whole thing, and if it was good enough, I'll save it and listen to it again later, But uh, uh, which is a lot easier to do with audio books. So, yeah. Um, that's awesome. Did you want to talk about that book, or you want to wait until it's published? Sure, I'll, I'll talk about it. Okay, um, I'll, I'll just give you guys a uh, a flavor. Um, 
So everybody in the Air Force has had to go through suicide prevention training. Yeah. And most people have hated when they had to go to suicide <laughs> prevention training because yeah. it's always been, you know, basically about, uh, hey, here's the signs, look for the signs, try to catch somebody before they commit suicide. Um, we actually had three suicides uh, within about a two-month time span when I was a director of staff. And uh, so I went upstairs, started uh, having some some pretty in-depth chats with uh, Ted, our suicide prevention. Is it uh, violence manager. prevention now? Is that what they yeah, call yeah, it now? It's, yeah, yeah, it's violence prevention. Yeah. Um. But uh, so he was talking about uh, Thomas Joyner's uh, interpersonal theory of suicidality, and basically what what Joyner says is that for somebody to commit suicide, there has to be three things going on in their life overlapping. Uh, one, they have to feel that life is meaningless. Number two, they have to believe, and this doesn't have to be true, but they have to believe that the person, or the, the people who should love them the most reject them. And then the third one is that they have to be habituated to pain enough that they no longer fear uh, the pain associated with yeah. with committing suicide or at least attempting suicide and uh and then it hit me that we have been going about suicide prevention completely wrong because when these three things happen uh in fact well, well, I'll just say when the first two happen say if you have somebody that believes life is meaningless and they believe that uh, whoever should love them the most rejects them, you don't have somebody that, that will commit suicide. What you have is you have people that wish they could go to bed and not wake up. Yeah. And then when you have the third one, uh, you still don't necessarily have somebody commit suicide. It requires a, a triggering action. So it's that, that, that horrendous fight with the spouse that might be the, the, tr the triggering event. Yeah. And so then there might be a 15-minute window at which the our, our natural desire to preserve our life leaves. And that's why a lot of times we'll put trigger locks on, on guns because it delays getting to that, that means yeah. possibly for long enough so that our, our, our instinct for self-preservation kicks back in. Well, it hit me that if it's a 15-minute window what are the odds of us seeing a sign <laughs> yeah. and being there? It, it's <laughs> yeah. almost non-existent. Yeah. And so what we've been doing for years is laughably ineffective. And so it hit me that what we need instead is purely proactive suicide prevention. And because and what we're doing right now isn't suicide prevention at all. It's, it's, it's an attempt at crisis intervention. Right. It's hoping we catch it right before it happens. And so what I did was I took uh, those three areas from Joyner's theory, and I said, well, if that is what the pure negative end of the spectrum looks like, mm -hmm. you know, when somebody's life is falling apart, what is the pure positive end of the spectrum? What does it look like when somebody's life is full of meaning? And what does it look like when they're connected deeply to those around them and to the people in the community where they live? 
And what is a positive instead of a negative acquired ability? Yeah. And so I figured kind of what that might look like, kind of came up with uh, a outline for the book, which was also an outline for uh, self-study yeah. <laughs> before I could really write the book and, and, and got to work. But the, the point of it is that rather than focusing on a person committing suicide, if I'm a leader, I can take everybody that works for me and focus on helping them be the best person they can be. I can help them find meaning in who they are and in what their job is and in other facets of their life. I can help them connect to the people they work with. I can help them build relationships with people outside of work or, 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 or develop the tools so that they, they can anyways. Right. And, and I can help them uh, develop you know, to, to look at the four areas in life where we deal with stress the most maybe define what right looks like in their own life in those four areas and yeah. build positive habits to get them there and keep them there. And so by doing so, I'm not only preventing suicide in the exact same way that by brushing your teeth, you're preventing cavities, <laughs> Yeah, but I'm helping everybody that works for me to be as effective and efficient and happy as possible Yeah, because it's, it's not good enough just, you know, yeah. To just for, for, for if me, the line is just don't kill yourself, yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what 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 does it say about you as a leader if if you're fine with your people being miserable, yeah. just as long as you're they're not so miserable that they kill themselves and they don't become a statistic, right? right. So, so that was the 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 epiphany I had for a book, and within a week I had an outline and. About a week after that, I started putting pen to paper, and yeah. uh, took me two and a half years to write. Uh, a ton of reading in that time, but uh, we're we're getting awfully close. And you're all, to close publish. to publishing. That's that's awesome. I'm I'm very interested in the uh, the process of writing a book. I don't know that I have a subject I want to write about right now, but it's it's not easy because these things start as like kind of phantom like ideas, right? And then just slowly over time, you you flesh them out and it takes okay. a lot of self-studying, uh, reading. And uh, I know Yogi, I think Yogi is the type that wants to wants to be an author. <laughs> uh, but he's mired in the day-to-day -day business of the Air Force uh, right now. So providing, finding time to do that and to prioritize that uh, can be difficult. So it, it It is, but I'll say I wrote this thing while director of staff and while deputy group commander. Yeah. So it's, it's doable. It's just, it takes some, some dedication and you have to find a topic that you feel passionately enough about. Right. Do you have enough, uh, like, like a lot of late evenings? <laughs> I had a lot of early mornings. <laughs> oh, I'll okay. say that. Yeah. So I, I spent Saturday and Sunday mornings, uh, before my family got up there, they're all, I'm kind of a still semi early riser. And yeah. They are not, so yeah. uh, that's that's what I spend some mornings I, doing. I'm I'm the opposite. I'll stay up late, like kids and stuff to bed at like eight thirty, and it's like okay, now it's my time to to work on the things that uh, I really want because I I can usually get by with you know six to seven hours, yeah, pretty readily, and then you know seven a.m. Uh, the first kid's waking up ready to go, uh, so 
So I'm a, a late night guy, but it does seem to come at the cost of yeah. like you're not gonna be able to integrate it into the rest of your normal daily waking life. Like there will be some sacrifice of time. You have uh, to, elsewhere, yeah. yeah, you have to make it a priority, set aside time somewhere and yeah. then fill everything else in. Yeah. And that's, it's, and I, I, it's the same thing with mentorship. Like we were discussing earlier, the fact that you yep. chopped time out specifically and scheduled it says a lot. Cause most of the time, why people will be like, Hey, can you, yeah, get in touch with the exec, get on my calendar. It's like, well, now I'm kind of imposing on you as, as the leader and the guide is like trying, I'm hoping to get some mentorship and uh, guidance from, it would be much more effective if it went the opposite direction. Yeah. Like, Oh, you want to do that? All right, cool. I'm going to, even if you tell your exec to do it, be like, yep, I'm going to tee him up. You know, he'll be, he'll be, t- he'll contact you tomorrow or whatever, or hell, I might just do it myself and be like, Hey, are you good? Are you free tomorrow at two? Awesome. Let's get together for an hour. Um, coming down is, I, th- I think shows the investment, uh, in the time. Cause that's something making, meaning that that's something you care about. Like I care enough to put my own skin in this game and take my time to make this whole thing happen. Yep. Um, which is huge. Um, we're at just over two hours, which is kind of what we advertised. So um, I've actually really, really enjoyed this. Um, I did. Like I said, you've been a part of my, my a subtle part of my Air Force career basically the entire time. And this is certainly the longest I've ever sat down with you and uh, the, the, the most I've ever learned about your particular like, leadership style and model. And I think it's a good one uh, that I hope more people can take with them into the future. Even if it's not like, I don't know, guys in current leadership positions, our, our listenership is still relatively small, focused in the, you know, mid-tier captain type. But uh, but hearing that it's been done and where it's been done and having some details on that, I think will be useful to them. It has been to me. Um, so I really appreciate your time. Do you have anything else you want to hit on? Um. Well, I'll say that uh, the book should be titled Upgrade Training for Life. Yeah. Uh, that's also my company name oh, awesome. right now. But yeah. uh, I'll say as of uh, right now, I, I don't know if I do. I, that That's probably fine. Uh, time has yeah. flown by. I'll say that uh, I just live right over there, man. So yeah. as, uh, as other topics cross your mind, if uh, you ever want to invite me back, I would uh, consider it an honor, and I would more than happy to, All right. to, to give of myself uh, to you and to the rest of the community. I mean, obviously, I care deeply about this community. I've spent most of my professional yeah. life in it, and so if I can help people out, I am more than happy to do so. All right, Andrew. Well, thank you for your time. I greatly appreciate you. How about you take us out? See ya. Don't know where